The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Mm-hmm. Boom. And, and we're back. we are coming in hot because it's exciting today. This we're is not talking about the weather actively. Actively avoiding talking about the weather now that we're talking about it. No, we're just so Midwestern, we but. can't help it. <laughs> but... We are coming in hot because uh, this is going to be a little bit of a different kind of an episode. Yeah, we've got some some special clips to got add some, in. Got some different kinds of, of vibes going on. But I don't actually know anything about any of the clips that we're using. I know. I'm excited. Yeah. You sent them to me. I've got them here. I'll cue them up when we're here to listen. <laughs> and, and that's I'm it. I'm going to hear them at the same time as everybody else. Yeah, well, we haven't done sorta. one like this yeah. before, so. I know. This will be new. I'm excited about it. Me too. Well, with that, we better start with the question that everybody is always asking. Mm. What are you drinking? Well, in very sad news. Yes. I had to take a long pause for that. Oh, yes. I know where you're going with this already. I learned a devastating truth tonight that the ruby red variety of squirt has been discontinued, which I'm really sad about it. That's been one of those comfort drinks that I've Mm -hmm. had for like years that I don't have them all the time. Right. And I never have, but I'm very attached to them for very specific (laughs) childhood related reasons. And so I went on a quest tonight and I found some at the gas station. Nice. So yeah, Ruby Red Squirt. That's good. I'm breaking my no sugar, low sugar moment. In solidarity for such yes. tragic news. Yes. Yes. And if you want to support the cause, <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a, there, isn't there a, 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 something that people can sign a petition? Yeah. There's a change.org. <laughs> <laughs> I signed it. <laughs> you sent it to me <laughs> basically, um, basically begging me to sign it. Please which sign this. Then I signed it and then I shared it on Facebook because I'm like, well, I might as well really come alongside my my partner here. Well, and normally <laughs> when I send you a change.org, it's something really, really, really serious. Yeah. And you always sign it. And mm-hmm. then, you know, we wait for the updates on it and all of that. But this is like, this is its own <laughs> kind of is, petition. Yeah, yeah. I feel no shame in admitting <laughs> that I signed it. What are you drinking? <laughs> yes. Well, I'm drinking because we've been doing this summer shorts series, mm-hmm. shorter episodes over the course of the summer. 
one thing that I haven't really done is have a lot of summery drinks. I've kind True. of stuck with my usual stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went and I picked up a line in Kugel's Summer Shandy, Ooh. which is one of my favorite summer drinks. I just never have it around um, for no good reason. I just don't. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is what I'm drinking tonight out of a tall boy can, which is also not like me, but doing it. Here we are. Here we are. <laughs> well, good for you. I'm yeah. glad you've always enjoyed those. I do like these. As long as I've known you. I know. It's a good, it's a good uh, solid drink that I'll drink when it's around. Totes. All right. Well, my love, let's jump in to the craziness of this episode. Sounds great. So we're actually going to kick this one off a bit differently. Yes, please. This is an emergency. Please send a squad to piss on the road. Malmberg Manufacturing Company Machine Shop. Please, there's an ambulance, too. There's a girl hurt there. Can you tell me what happened to her? Just hurry. She's laying on the ground in the back by the the railroad tracks, by the airtime. Oh my gosh. So yeah. there's a girl laying next to the railroad tracks? Mm-hmm. Just, she's seriously hurt. He's saying send help. It's she's an emergency. already hurt. Okay. Yes. Wow. At around 3 a.m. on January 1st, 1981, 911 dispatchers in St. Paul, Minnesota received the call that we just listened to, which seemed to come from a man sounding very upset upon the discovery of a seriously injured young woman near a factory. Little did dispatchers know that not only would this be only the first call made by this man in regards to violent crimes taking place in the area, but that the call was coming from the killer himself. What? This is the story of the weepy-voiced killer. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. Oh my gosh. I literally just got goosebumps when you said that. It's very a very unique case. This is already so strange and like, excuse me? Like... It's jarring is mm-hmm. what it is. Well, and you heard in his voice that he's absolutely pan- like panicked, frantic, right. you know? Right. Yeah. So on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1980, 20-year-old college student Karen Potak was walking on Pierce Butler Road in St. Paul after a fun night out welcoming the new year at a nearby nightclub. She had spent the night with friends, drinking, dancing, and celebrating, but had begun her walk home by herself, much to the surprise of her friends who hadn't noticed that she was gone until she was already a ways down the road. Her home was only a short distance from the club, and I'm assuming that she'd made the walk before, and she should have been safe to do so on this night, but unfortunately, she wasn't. As she made her way home, Karen was suddenly ambushed by a man wielding a tire iron. He violently struck Karen with a tire iron repeatedly, bludgeoning her head and face in a vicious attack before being left to die near the business, the Malmberg Manufacturing Company. Oh. After brutally yeah. beating Karen, the attacker made that frantic call to 911. Hmm. First responders rushed to the scene. Karen was quickly found, but was almost unrecognizable due to her injuries. She'd been beaten so badly that her skull had been cracked open and parts of her brain were exposed, but she was alive. Oh my gosh. Karen was rushed to the hospital where she eventually miraculously woke up. Unfortunately, due to her injuries, Karen had absolutely no memory of the attack or of her attacker. Mm -hmm. It was learned that Karen had not been sexually assaulted, nor had she been robbed, which led police to conclude that whoever did this had attacked Karen with the sole intent of killing her. Wow. Despite efforts from law enforcement and from the local media, the killer remained unidentified. Isn't that that so weird? That's so weird and crazy. And 
how rare is it to see, especially on like a New Year's Eve attack mm-hmm. with someone out drinking and partying and then on their way walking back home right. to not have it be sexual in nature. Right. Or like, or robbery, you right. know, her being mugged. Right. There's no discernible motive right. besides he wanted to kill this person. Yeah. Crazy. On June 3rd, 1981, the killer would strike again. 18-year-old Kimberly Compton, a recent high school graduate from her small town of Pepin, Wisconsin, had just packed her bags and made her way to St. Paul after high school with dreams of adventure in the big city. Mm. On June 3rd, Kimberly had arrived by bus in St. Paul, where she quickly rented a locker at the bus station before walking around the area in search of something to eat. Right across the street, Mickey's Diner was open, and so Kimberly headed over and ordered the daily special, barbecue beef and fries. As she was enjoying her meal, the only other patron in the diner at the moment, a 30 or 40-something-year-old man, took notice of her. He got up from his booth, walked over to her, and struck up a conversation. Kimberly was friendly and told him that she just moved to the city and was kind of trying to figure her way around. Mm -hmm. The man excitedly offered her a ride around the city, agreeing to help her out and show her around so that she could get a lay of the land and so that she could see some of the more beautiful and scenic parts of the city as well. Kimberly and the man finished their meals together and continued chatting until their food bills were paid. Then they hopped into the man's car. Oh boy, okay. Well, you find me. I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. What? That's absolutely crazy that he, first off, he's just jumping right in with, yeah. I stabbed somebody. With an ice pick. I can't stop myself. With an ice pick? I missed that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. So, with the caller informing emergency services of a dead body, police were quickly dispatched and arrived at a location near an unfinished portion of road. They quickly found the body, and though they didn't have an ID for the victim at this time, we know it was Kimberly Compton. She had been stabbed 61 times with an ice pick in her chest, stomach, and thighs. She had also been strangled with a shoelace. So like massive, massive overkill. Wow. There were no signs of sexual assault nor any other physical evidence found on the scene that would give police any indication of who could have done this, but they quickly worked to identify the victim. Thankfully, Kimberly still had her key for her locker at the bus station on her at the time of her death. Mm -hmm. By looking through the contents of the locker, they were able to positively identify the victim as Kimberly Compton. Her autopsy revealed that there was an undigested meal in her stomach that they could identify, which led them to Mickey's Diner, which then helped them piece together a bit of a timeline. Okay. It would later be revealed that the killer had taken her from the diner and brought her to this location, you know, near where her body was found. Mm -hmm. He told her that if they walked a short distance, there would be a clearing in the secluded, partially wooded area where they would be able to get a view of the Mississippi River. When her guard was down, he struck her repeatedly with an ice pick until she died. Oh my gosh, that's like so gruesome. That's so crazy. So awful. Don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. Don't know why I had this tavern. I am so upset about it. I keep getting drunk every day and I can't believe I did it. Big dream. I can't think of being locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. 
Oh my, this is so intense. And like, I'm like, you, it like draws up emotions. Yeah. But I'm also like getting goosebumps while he's talking. This it's is so very, eerie. It's very deeply unsettling in the respect that this is the man yeah. who was responsible for yeah. taking the life of Kimberly Compton. And then on the other hand, there's something so, um, I, I can't quite think of the right word, but the just the level of uh, unhinged on mm-hmm. one hand, but also honest. It yeah. seems like, yeah, uh, that he that he has, he's, and he's he's literally just not even thinking about what he's saying. He's just saying what is ever popping into his brain yeah. at the moment, and he's self aware enough to know what he's done and doing is wrong. But it's also so, yeah. It's a very like jarring feeling. I it is jarring is the, jarring is the right word I think, and we'll talk a little bit more about specifically the phone calls towards the end, and I'm sure that will open up a little kind of back and forth between me and you. Sure. Um. But yeah, I'm, very very jarring. Yes, I'm very surprised so far. Um. Also, there's something about hearing this guy's voice. Yeah. Like we've. This is the first time we've ever done this on a Mm -hmm. podcast episode. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it's, yeah, it's really, it's really strange. It's akin to like listening to, um, those, like, I forget what the series was on Netflix. That was like the, the tapes of Mm -hmm. whatever serial killer it was. They've done a few. I think (laughs) we, we either watched the Gacy or the Bundy ones. Yeah. Whichever one it was. And it's like, it's just, yeah, it's unsettling to hear them, their own voices talk about what they've done. Mm -hmm. And, oh Yeah. Yeah. So in the days after Kimberly's murder, the killer would call in several more times. He would express remorse over his reactions, and he would also correct details that he had read in the newspaper that he said were inaccurate. Hmm, Interesting. And he kind of kept up his whole frantic charade, if that's what you want to call it. Hmm. Police cross-referenced all of the known calls coming from the killer, and his voice was definitely a match across all of them. But this didn't really do much to actually help identify him, so police decided to release the calls to the media in hopes that the public would potentially be able to recognize his voice. Wow. He was given the nickname, the weepy-voiced killer. This also didn't lead the police any closer to identifying a suspect, and for a good long while, no new victims of the weepy-voiced killer were discovered. Hmm. That is until the following year. In the early morning hours of August 6th, 1982, a paperboy was on his usual route when he made a horrifying discovery. On the banks of the Mississippi River in Minneapolis laid the body of a deceased woman caught in some underbrush. Please don't talk to this lesson. I'm sorry, I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one. Oh, my face. Oh, I don't know what you're mad at me. I'm sick. I'm going to kill myself, I think. Where are you? If somebody dies with a red tooth on it's me. I killed both of you. I'm sorry. I'm never going to get Wow. Oh, my gosh. It's it's like so unsettling and it's so yeah, I literally have I'm just getting goosebumps listening to all these calls. Mhm. <sighs> mhm. The last line, I'll never get into heaven. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. And and in this one in particular, like you can feel the the panic and the emotion in the other ones, but I feel like this one he's absolutely completely beside himself. Yeah. Even more so than in the previous ones, I yeah. feel like. 
Yeah, he's, it's almost like... It's so confusing. Yeah. yeah. He's beside himself. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And he's just uh, drowning, it sounds like, mm-hmm. in the emotion of it. Mm-hmm. So. so when police arrived on the scene, they quickly discovered the body of the woman. She was quickly identified as 40-year-old local nurse Barbara Simons. Barbara was local, like I said, and thankfully her tracks were easily traced. Mm-hmm. The night before, she'd been out for a night of drinks and dancing with her friends at the Hexagon Bar. During her night out, Barbara connected with a man who appeared to be in his 40s. She had told her friends that she thought he was cute. She offered him a cigarette, and the two struck up a conversation. Before leaving, Barbara told a waitress that she was going to leave with this guy that she'd met and that he was going to give her a ride home. Police questioned staff at the bar who were able to give a description of the man. He was somewhere around 40 years old, 6 feet tall, and somewhere around 185 pounds. He was described as tan with receding black hair. With the help of the FBI, local investigators in St. Paul were able to obtain a list of credible suspects matching the description of the man at the hexagon. They brought photos to the hexagon, which they showed to the employees that were working the night of Barbara's murder, and multiple employees identified the same man in that photo lineup. With that, the police were able to get a name, which we'll talk about here in a second. Mm. So for the first time in the weepy-voiced killer's time as an active murderer, investigators finally had a description of the most likely suspect in the case and the last known person to have seen Barbara Simons alive. While the hunt was on for the killer, he struck again. This time, his target was 19-year-old sex worker Denise Williams. While she was out working the nighttime streets of Minneapolis on August 21st, 1982, That same evening, the police actually had the suspect in their sights and had been following him around after they observed him leaving his apartment in his car. Unfortunately, though, he had managed to lose the police, and that's when he happened upon Denise. Oh, no. He offered her $100 for her services for the night, and she agreed, and she hopped into his passenger seat, and they drove off into the night. However, Denise started feeling like something was very wrong with her client when he began taking strange turns as they were driving. As he was about to pull onto a dead-end road in a dark suburban area, the man pulled out a screwdriver and began viciously stabbing Denise. Oh, no. After being stabbed around 15 times with a screwdriver, Denise noticed an empty glass bottle on the floor right in front of her. She picked it up without missing a beat, and she slammed the bottle down onto the man's head before jumping out of the car and literally running for her very life. Oh my gosh. As Denise ran and screamed out in pain, a neighbor heard the commotion and came outside to see if they could help. The man in the car, bleeding heavily from the wound on his head from the glass bottle, threatened the neighbor with the screwdriver before he drove off. Denise waited with a neighbor who I couldn't find a name for, which makes me really sad because this was just like, Someone who, out of the goodness of their heart, saw something really scary happening and did something about it. Unsung hero. An unsung hero, for sure. So this neighbor called an ambulance for Denise. Her wounds were quickly assessed and treated, and she ended up making a full recovery from everything that I could find. Oh, that's great. In her statement to police, Denise also positively identified the same man as the one they'd been following just hours before. This was 37-year-old Paul Michael Stefani. So, Paul Michael Stefani was born in 1944 in Austin, Minnesota. He was the youngest of 10 children born to their extremely devout Catholic parents. When he was very young, his mother remarried, and the new husband turned stepfather 
became kind of known for being abusive towards each of the children. Oh, that's really sad. With reports stating that he would do things like throwing the kids down the stairs when he was angry. And there were plenty of other descriptions of physical assault towards the children. So this guy was awful. While I couldn't confirm this, the assumption has kind of been that Paul would have likely been one of the easiest candidates for the abuse since he was the youngest and smallest at the time of the abuse. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's not really any way to confirm that because I couldn't find any, like, official reports or anything. Right. As the years progressed, Paul ended up growing up and getting married to a woman named Beverly Leiter, and the two welcomed a daughter together. Eventually, Paul and Beverly divorced, and not much is known about her or their child since that time. Paul was able to land several jobs over the years, including working as a shipping clerk and custodian at the Malmberg Manufacturing Company, the same location where he had attacked Karen Potak. He had a hard time keeping a job and claimed that he developed epilepsy as a result of his time on staff there. I'm genuinely not sure if that's how epilepsy works or if he was ever even formally diagnosed with epilepsy at this time of Mm. his life, but that is what he claimed. Yeah. After jumping around jobs and losing them all, it seemed like Paul either hit a point where he snapped or that some other unknown stressor in his life took over, and that's when he began attacking, murdering, and attempting to murder multiple women. Yeah. After Denise identified Paul, police were certain that this was their guy. They just needed to formulate a plan to bring him in for questioning. And they would not have to wait very long. That same night, Paul made another 911 call. In this call, he was upset, claiming that he needed an ambulance because he'd been attacked and beaten up and that he was bleeding very badly from his head. Putting together Denise's story and the frantic, emotional sound of the voice over the phone, they realized that the caller was, in fact, Paul Michael Stefani. Wow. So he'd actually returned home. He just went back to his apartment after Denise's incredible escape, and he noticed that the cuts from being hit with the bottle were pretty deep, and he needed medical attention. Yeah. So he just called for help. (laughs) Wow. A short time later, police and an ambulance arrived at his apartment. He was treated for his wounds and then brought down to the police station for questioning. At first, he stuck with his story that he was a victim of a random assault. One of the lead detectives, a guy by the name of Detective Brown, kind of let Paul ramble on, but the tone in the room shifted when Paul was shown detailed descriptions and photographs of his crimes by police. Mm. Paul went from kind of sure of his story, like really sticking with it, to suddenly standing up out of his seat and yelling in a rather weepy voice, a weepy voice pretty much identical to the one on the recorded 911 calls, that he did not commit these murders and they would not be pinned on him. However, it would not be long before he'd be charged with the assault of Denise Williams and the murder of Barbara Simons. Wow. Paul pleaded not guilty on all charges, and so his trial began in February of 1985. His calls were kind of one of the major smoking gun pieces of evidence presented by the prosecution, and with the help of Paul's sister— and ex-wife, who they both agreed that the voice on the phone calls was indeed Paul's. Mm, So he actually was found guilty of the attempted second-degree assault of Denise Williams and of the murder of Barbara Simons. He would be sentenced to 40 years for his crimes. He did try to appeal it Mm -hmm. shortly after, like a couple months later, but it was very quickly denied. Yeah, obviously. There's enough people (laughs) confirming that this this is you. And... Like he has a confession. He has several confessions on his recorded voice. lines. Yeah. 
This right. is crazy. So yeah. unfortunately, due to lack of evidence, he was not able to be convicted or charged in connection with the assault of Karen Potak and the murder of Kimberly Compton, a fact which haunted the investigators on those cases for several years. In 1997, while serving his time in the Oak Park Heights prison in Minnesota, he was diagnosed with skin cancer, and with a grim prognosis, Paul ultimately agreed to confessing to more crimes. He confessed to murdering Kimberly Compton, which he was the one who provided the details of like, yeah, she was eating this food. This is what I told her. This is how the conversation went. Yeah. So he filled in those blanks that police obviously couldn't really come up with a timeline for, for sure. He also confessed to murdering another victim that had not been connected to him until this time. Mm. This was the murder of 33-year-old Kathleen Greening. Kathleen had been found dead, drowned in her bathtub in her own home on July 21st, 1982, just a few short weeks before Barbara Simons was also murdered. Paul offered details about the crimes that had not been made available to the public. And when police looked at Kathleen's address book, which was saved in evidence, Mm -hmm. the name Paul S. was listed there. Wow. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Despite the fact that the death had initially been ruled as an accidental drowning, Kathleen's family and loved ones were able to get a full picture of what had actually happened to her in her final moments. Hmm. Paul Michael Stefani died in prison from skin cancer on June 12th, 1998, and has gone down in the annals of true crime as a confusing killer. With no consistent victimology and no clear motive for his crimes, as the victims were never robbed or sexually assaulted, many have speculated over the years about the 911 calls. Were those calls being made by a mentally ill man in the throes of a psychological spiral who was genuinely remorseful and regretful for his compulsion to kill in such a gruesome manner? Or were they coming from a calculated sociopath who delighted in confusing the investigation and in seeing his name even if it was only a nickname in the papers. Hmm. We'll never really truly have an answer to those questions. Wow. But that is what I have for you today. Man, that, okay. So that's a really fair point to make that he could just, you know, get off on people putting his nickname in the papers mm-hmm. and all that stuff. At the same time, he, he confessed later on, obviously dying of skin cancer. But he confessed to so many things he didn't have to. Right. So it's, and I mean, I guess once again, it's one of those like you confess it so that you can relive it or so that people He know. said that he felt like he needed to get it off his chest. Which, That's, yeah, can go either way, honestly. It was a guilty conscience. Yeah. According to him. Right. And it really, all you can really go off of is your gut when you're hearing these recordings. I know. That's the only thing I can really think of that would give me some kind of a, of a, confidence in what I'm about to say. It sounds like it's legit. Mm-hmm. You know, he knows there's something wrong with his brain as he's reacting poorly mm-hmm. in these moments and he feels guilty about it. Right. So in my mind, it's that cut and dry, but I'm also not somebody, I mean, I've literally heard of this story for the last 20 minutes and that's all I've got Right. Well, <laughs> compared I've to people who've spent a lot more time on it. Those calls are available on YouTube. Those mm-hmm. calls are um, in a you know documentaries, there have been some really great like YouTubers who do true crime and um, podcasters who do true crime yeah. that have included the calls. And in comment sections revolving around this case with the calls included, it's split pretty much down the middle. Hmm. You get a lot of people who agree with you. Like this definitely sounds like a man who 
is being as genuine as can be. Like he impulsively called 911. Yeah. But then, you know, you could make the argument that he felt guilty because he was afraid of not getting into heaven or because he right. said that. Right. And because he didn't want to go to jail. He said if if he was going to have to go to jail, the thought of him getting locked up caused him to drink and made him want to unalive himself. Right. Like it, it, there's a level of guilt that is like, are you just afraid of getting caught? Or are you like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Someone please stop me. And he even right. used, he did use the phrase, somebody stop me. Right. I can't stop myself. Mm. You know, so I go back and forth. Like, yeah. like the, the person, the compassionate half of me is like, you know, at the end of the day, what really matters is the victims, what they went through. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful that as far as we know, all of his victims, families do have some level of closure. Right. Even though it's awful and like they have to live with knowing these terrible things happen to their loved one, they at least have an answer. Right. Which is something. But at the end of the day, it's really hard to know. That's so hard to know. So I couldn't find anything about like um, psychological evaluations that were done or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they're out there. I'm sure they're, they're probably not hard to find with, with some digging, Mm -hmm. but I haven't seen anything indicating that he ever got a formal diagnosis of anything, even the epilepsy that he claimed to have. I don't actually know if that was formally diagnosed or not. Well, and it's hard to even know too, considering that he passed away in the mid Mm nineties, late nine, mid to late nineties. Everything before that would be, I feel like, a little bit tougher mm-hmm. to make a case for. What than the analysis would, be today. would look like. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Like they I, still had like fit to stand trial and like, sure. like yeah. competent to stand trial, you know, yeah. things in place. But as far as like how advanced they were and how thorough they were, mm-hmm. I actually don't know. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, it's a really yes, it's confusing story in mm-hmm. in the sense that like we don't know anything about this guy essentially. And it's also just a really sad story. Mm-hmm. Nobody ended up getting what they wanted. He didn't even really, it sounds like, right. get what he wanted. Like, I don't even know if he knew what he wanted. It doesn't sound like it. And that's why it's so sad, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. There were no real winners in this one. This one was just sad all around. Yeah. I'm glad that his crimes didn't continue for years and years. Right. Had Denise not survived. Oh, my gosh. I mean, could he, he could have yeah. kept going. Yeah. Granted, they did have their sights on him already. He could have ran if he got smart to it. It wouldn't have been that hard. He didn't have like a family to try and leave because he and Beverly weren't together anymore. Right. And it sounds like they had no like connection at all. Yeah. They were just watching him. They weren't, they didn't, they couldn't just walk in and arrest Mm -hmm. him. Right. Wow. Well, everybody, thanks so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling and unsavory story today. If you aren't already, please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast on your favorite listening platform and that you leave a five-star review or whatever the equivalent is on that platform. Those reviews do help other people who like this kind of podcast to find this one. Um, Also, make sure that you're following us on social media. We're on Instagram and TikTok at This One Is A Doozy. And on Facebook, This One's A Doozy Podcast. And you can share these posts that we put up every week. You can let your friends know. You can tell everybody about your favorite episodes as they come out. Um, and I think this is the second to last summer yeah, short. Yeah, we have one more summer short. One and then we'll have a short. little Patreon sampler moment yeah. happening after that. Yeah. Because we're in the thick of launching back into homeschooling. That's so. right. That's right. Well, speaking of Patreon, 
Um, that is a great place to get even more connected in with us. So my love, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about Patreon? Yeah. So you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook about section, or you can go to patreon.com slash doozy pod. And for $5 a month, you can support our show. Over on Patreon, subscribers will get access to all of our content Mm ad-free, as well as two monthly bonus episodes. And we are about to announce, I think in two weeks, we're going to be announcing our candidates for our giving polls over on Patreon as well. For the fall? For For the the fall quarter. For the autumnal quarter. (laughs) So if you'd like to get in on that sort of thing and help us decide which organization we should give to, we would love to have you. That's awesome. Well, everybody, with that, we will see you next week for another doozy. Thank you. Bye.